Welcome to WP Tonic Roundtable Podcast, where a panel of leading WordPress junkies discusses the latest WordPress and internet stories of the week. Now, on with the show with your moderator, Jonathan Denwood. Welcome back, folks, to the WP Tonic Roundtable Show. This is episode 537. I've got a small but powerful panel. It's a bit larger than last week's. Um, I think I've actually rustled up some better stories. And it should be a good show. I'm going to let the panel quickly in- let them introduce themselves, starting with my friend Spencer. Spencer, would you like to quickly introduce yourself? Hello, everybody. Spencer Foreman from launchflows.com. And I've got my own friend, Stephen. Stephen, would you like to quickly introduce yourself? Yeah, Stephen from zipfish.io. And I've got my old friend, Sally. Sally, would you like to quickly introduce yourself? I'm Sally, the WP fangirl. Thank you. Um, I just love it. Um, so um, before we go into the main stories of the week, I just want to quickly mention one of our great sponsors, and that's Kinster. Kinster is only a WordPress hosting provider. If you're looking for really powerful and quality hosting, I think they're one of the best choices on the market at the present moment, or the be- or the best choice. Um, if you've got a WooCommerce site, a learning management system, a large uh, membership site, you're going to need something better than your average hosting provider, and that's what you get from Kinster. Um, They use Google Cloud um, hosting as the backbone of their system. They've got um, a fabulous interface, um, great support. Basically, go over, have a look at their packages, and the main thing, if you do decide to buy one for yourself or for your clients, is to do the show a favour and tell them that you heard about them on the WP Tonic podcast so into the first story um so wordpress ipo so what did you think of this one Stephen? be interesting to see when it happens how it happens and like what the ripple effect that'll be um i don't know too much about this new exchange it's kind of an interesting space because it's a little bit more geared towards long-term plays so like there's not quite the pressures of, you know, performing at a high level the next bit quarter. anti-American, the isn't it? Long-term <laughs> thinking, isn't it? You know? I don't know. At the end of the day, it's about making money. So I wouldn't say it's too, too anti-American. Too long-term, yeah. Um, but it's the idea of Automatic becoming um, a public company, I think, would change who Automatic is um, at the end of the day. And seeing how that plays out in how their company is organized and what they pursue. Uh, I think they would have to have a lot more acquisitions. The article kind of talks about this too a little bit or alludes to it, that they kind of have to bolster some things around them um, before they're probably ready for an IPO. Um, but we also have WP Engine out there, which the article mm-hmm. talks about, uh, looking for an IPO. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see who hits that point first. WP Engine feels like a lot more viable company to take as a IPO because they're fully focused on making money and profit and they don't have kind of the, I don't know if obligation is the right word, but to support this open source project. Well, it's where, just messy, isn't it? It's messy, isn't it? Where yeah. WP Engine is just where, pretty... Where Automatic pretty, does have that kind of obligation, but they also have a lot more influence on where WordPress goes. So they're less... Um, like but in a way, I, I think as a as a, a medium, maybe long term investment, WordPress would be a more interesting 
Um, I I really, you know, apart from being bought out, I, I have... Um, I was going to say I wonder about the future growth of WP Engine, but um, it was brought to my attention that I really didn't know that much about hosting. I thought hosting was dominated by GoDaddy and and some of the other big players. But um, when Chris um, um, Chris came on the show um, from Liquid Web, um, he pointed out it's still totally dominated by small players. So seemingly there's loads of growth in it. Um, I just had John join us, uh, John Locke, my friend John. So what do you reckon, Spencer? What do you reckon about this? Well, I'm going to pick up where Stephen was discussing. First of all, WP Engine is a different business altogether. And again, founded and operated in a way that was already a pretty small circle of investors and really focused on one thing. And while I'm not bullish at all on hosting, I do believe that the hosting along with the other accessories that they're starting to package together is the direction. You know, we've talked about this ad nauseum for the last two years that all the people in hosting are looking to make it a done for you or a packaged service. Um, whichever direction you come from, WP Engine is really poised to, to make good use of that immediately. So if let's say, for example, they go this long-term stock exchange, it's a different marketplace. There's a lot of initial energy. They could be one of the founding listed uh, stocks. I think that could work out very well for them. Plus, you know, Jason Cohn and everybody else, Heather, who runs the company, uh, terrific folks, nothing but nice things to say about them, despite the fact that I think the product needs adjustment to adapt to the future, you know, because it's shared hosting with uh, caching. I think that they can run an amazing business, not that dissimilar to like a GoDaddy, where it becomes, you know, everybody who doesn't know any better chooses that, or everybody who does know better chooses it for a new reason. W uh, With Automatic, on the other hand, this would be a liquidity event. So what I see here is a little coyness in the answer where he says, you'll IPO this year, discuss, not this year, emphasis on the this, because let's be honest, there's nothing else going on with automatic except grooming this for somebody to have a liquidity event for the investors. And how would that be useful? Well, maybe on the one hand, it'd be useful to stop all the shenanigans of like who's running the company and why, because as soon as it's public, you're going to have to answer to a different... I was actually going to say that, and then I thought myself, well, it totally depends on the preferential share. Well, there there could still be a thumb your nose at it if they have that ability, but let's be honest. This doesn't mean a good result. This just means that a definitive focus is now going to be on investors' return versus the venture capitalists can do a lot of, hey, what are we going to do in the background? Who's in charge? What does the board say? Here you've got like uh, the stock market price is going to be evaluating factor. But I don't, okay, so like my conclusion, I don't really care that much one way or the other if they go on this, but it could have a direct influence on whether the same shenanigans continue with things like accessibility and the Gutenberg project and this and that. Oh, no, it, I, think it's gonna, I think it will be different shenanigans. It could get it? worse. It could get worse because what could happen is everything could shift towards trying to make Jetpack into the de facto thing that they focus on exclusively and everybody else be damned. And the code doesn't go away, but that just gives people an emphasis to let's talk about how we might fork the code and go do something else with it. And and one last thing on that is that I do find it very odd that after all this conversation we've had and everybody else has had, if the code remains open source and it gets forked, 
I still don't understand why that's even a burden on anybody because open source code is continually open source. So if they make changes to it, you could just fork it over to the fork, you know, and just keep running it and let them do whatever they're going to do, but just be free from all the stuff that you don't want. You can strip out the Gutenberg shenanigans or whatever. So I'm really surprised that nobody has jumped the shark on this yet, even though there were some conversations about it. Okay. John, I see you. thanks for joining us. What did you yep. reckon about this? Automatic. Yes. Automatic IPO. Yeah, I, I, I seen that comment that is, I guess uh, JJJ uh, deleted. He said that they're going to uh, go on that secondary long-term um, long exchange. Uh, but then Matt Mullenweg said that it was going to be next year. I, I think that that's what we've all been expecting ever since uh, Salesforce put a ton of money into them. Um, it, and I, you know, it's, it's logical. I mean, these, these are all the product moves that they've been making for a long time with WooCommerce, uh, with, with the hosting, with all these ramping up Jetpack uh, in the um, uh, admin, you know, the, these are all things that, of course, they're going to IPO at some time. You know, I, I think it brings up a bigger issue of when you have a, a so-called open source software, but, you know, you're relying on volunteer um, labor to push it forward, but it's benefiting a company um, that's a for-profit publicly held company. I mean, that to me becomes like an ethical issue. You know, the community is really no longer in control of the direction of it because now it's become a, it's, it's going to be like a publicly held product. I mean, in the product timeline is, is really just that. That's how you get forks, like get, you know, classic press and stuff like that, where people are forking it to, to take it uh, in the direction that they want, because, you know, it's, it's basically, it's this weird thing in capitalism where you get is as many like people like working on a product and then maybe it started that way, like hippie dippy granola, kumbaya, but now it's basically big money. That's what they're seeing. So. Yeah. What do you reckon, Sally? Um, I think the governance point that Stephen made is, is interesting. Um, uh, uh, although, you know, I suspect that a lot of what we've seen out of uh, automatic recently has to do with the fact that they got all that, investment money and that, uh, you know, investors are not looking for uh, a, a modestly profitable investment over the long term. You know, investors are looking for, uh, you know, big money as soon as possible. Um, and that tends to drive decisions in a way that, uh, you know, we've heard uh, Josh at, at Pageley talk about that, you know, that that's not the only way for a business to be successful and it may not be the best thing for, uh, for the business or the, uh, or the product or, or the customers to go in that direction. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, it could be good. It, it could be bad. And of course we know that there are plenty of, um, public companies that get up to shenanigans and don't seem to have a lot of uh, oversight. Um, we'll be mentioning one of them later. Oh, wow. I, one thing that I think is interesting too, that we kind of touched on, but nobody, we haven't like really focused on is that 
when you have outside capital coming in, like you can make the assumption that maybe these people are doing it for more altruistic reasons, like Google investing money or Salesforce, like trying to like who, who, who knows what their end goal is. But as soon as you get on a public market and you're a public company, the end goal is very, very obvious and is only generally at one point is to return value to the shareholders. And you can assume maybe that's the goal of Google and Salesforce, but it's not always how companies choose to invest their money. And so I think it just makes that point all that more obvious that Automatic is trying to generate as much capital as possible and that the shareholders will be applying that pressure. Well, I think we've said all we can, really, because um, it's all in the detail, really, isn't it, which we are not going to have access to. So, um, not this year. Well, uh, um, right, on to... Uh, I thought it was a pretty interesting read. Um, product market fit is a broken concept. What did you reckon about this one, Sally? Um, that uh, what I thought product market fit meant apparently is not what it actually means. Um, uh, uh, th- this was mostly a lot of uh, blah, blah, ginger, blah, blah to me. Um, I don't uh, develop products uh, or understand very much about it. And uh uh, you know, Rand seems to be making some sense in terms of uh, well, how awful. he outlines what's going yeah. to work, but um, I don't think I'm terribly well qualified to comment on this. Well, let's, well, let's put it over to Stephen, because I, I thought some of Rand's articles can be a lot of fluff, but I, I thought there was a little bit of meat here, and I, I totally agreed with him. What, what, what was your thought, Stephen? Uh, product market fit isn't like a completely like terrible idea, because... If you have a better fit, it's easier to market your product than a worser fit. But a lot of times, you it's not either this binary choice of fit, no fit, and no company generally hits that kind of binary decision. You're somewhere in the middle. And I think what drives it a lot more than product market fit is do you keep pursuing whatever your marketing niche yeah. is long enough to build credibility and influence inside of that sector. And then you achieve this feeling or this idea of product market fit where the market all of a sudden surrounds you and you're the leader in whatever. Well, the same thing applies. It's the thing I keep saying to my people that come to me and ask for some advice about courses. I say to them, you know, they've got this thing that they need to build the ideal course. And I say to them, well, you know, you need to get the the smallest viable course up and running and start to see if you can build market fit. And they just look at me um, because it's going to be an ongoing process. And the idea that you can start off, unless you've got a lot, a lot of credibility and knowledge in a particular sector, you're going to hit a course off straight off the bat. It's a bit of a fantasy. What do you reckon, Spencer? Unmute yourself. Well, I th- again, I think Rand likes to do these things with his charts, and he's very knowledgeable in his space. But quite honestly, his charts do him a disservice. I think he needs to just rethink that because he would have been better sticking to his words on this. The bottom yeah. line is that he's making, I think, an argument in favor of there are times when product market fit means you just have the most saturation and maybe the best conversion rates and so forth. But that in many cases, and I think that's true of any entrepreneurial endeavor, you don't really achieve that and then sit there and it's done. What happens is that it is a moving target. And so I use a different denominator. And I mean, who am I to tell Rand Fishkin otherwise, because he's got his market. But um, 
find a pain point, solve the pain point, get paid for solving the pain point, rinse and repeat. That process sometimes is a very small vertical niche. But when you take home net profit that is equivalent to having 80% of market share by having 2% market share, who wins? So in other words, I say, look at success of a business or as a product, not in terms of market share or statistics and in the sense of like how many people, but rather look at it, how much you make, how much you net, and how much work you had to do for that, whether it's a one person or a hundred person company. I oftentimes find, for example, in the space of being an agency, we're a two person consultancy. We have seen people we like that emulate who had 10 people, hundred people agencies. And they say, we did a hundred million dollars of client work this year. I'm like, great. What was your net profit? $20,000. And how much did you take home personally? $65,000 for running a 100-person company. I'm like, or you could have sat home in your jammies and made three times that by having a, a tenth of the clients and having one zero of one-tenth of one percent of the market share. What is the purpose of the business is my point. And I think that's the takeaway for anybody because he's not saying you should be like his company, but you can't speak on this topic without reference to what are the goals of the business or the business owner, it's irrelevant. Yeah. What do you reckon, John? Yeah. I mean, uh, this, this article seems really written from the perspective of the, if you have a product that's trying to scale in a larger market and, and like Spencer mm -hmm. said, you know, there's different goals. I mean, to that, I mean, there's lots of products that can fit like within a market, but I, I think that there's other things that are just as important, such as not only just does your product, you know, fit the market, but what is the perception of it? If you're a first mover within a market, you're going to have an advantage that, that other products don't have. If you're like the one of the first to market and you establish yourself, the other thing is, can you get traction as, um, having influence within that uh, community. Moz is, is a great example. Uh, you know, they had a lot of influence within SEO early on. And still to this day, after Rand has left, they still have influence and people still use that product. You know, in the WordPress ecosystem, you can look at something like Gravity Forms as far as like a forum plugin. There's like, you know, five or six like major ones, but they're the one that you think of. Or like a hosting, you think of... Um, the WP Engine or Pagely or something like that. Though there's like hundreds and hundreds of hosts, there's certain ones that you think of that have captured the attention in the imagination. And those are the ones that are most likely to get recommended. Though these hundreds of other ones have a product market fit, there are certain ones that stand out because of marketing and just their positioning within that market itself. So those are all things that matter as well. I think that was some great points there. Thanks, John. I think we're going to go for a break. When we'll come back, I've got some more great stories. Well, I've got a few. We'll be back in a few moments, folks. Are you a WordPress consultant, designer, or small digital agency owner? Then you need WP Tonic as your trusted white-label developer partner for your next big e-learning or WooCommerce project. WP Tonic has the knowledge to help you build out custom functionality that your clients need in LearnDash, Lifter LMS, and WooCommerce. WP Tonic is well-known and trusted in the WordPress community. They stand behind their work with a full, no-question-asked, 30-day money-back guarantee. So don't delay. Find out how WP Tonic's white-label services can help your agency today. Go to wp-tonic.com's homepage and book a free consultation with Jonathan. That's wp-tonic, 
just like the podcast. Coming back, I want to talk about one of our other great sponsors, and that's Groundhog. If you're looking for a native IA WordPress plugin that can be your CRM system, you could do a lot worse than using Groundhog. I've been playing uh, with it and sending out, using it with some client websites lately, and I've been enjoying the experience. Uh, um, I think it's something that's been really needed in the WordPress ecosystem for quite a while. Um, Adrian and his team seem to be committed to building it further and making it even more superb. If that sounds interesting for yourself or for your clients, I suggest that you go over to Groundhog, have a look at what they've got to offer, buy one of their plans and really, and do the, the show a favour and tell them that you heard about them on the WP Tonic podcast. So on to the next story. Um, I think, oh, they've been buying again. I think buys WP um, how do you pronounce it? How do you pronounce it? Camp, camp, how? Camp, complete. Complete. WP oh, I had complete. a brain, yeah, think complete. I had a brain fart. WP Complete. Com- completing their restricted content. So, uh, what do you reckon about this one, Stephen? Um, I, I don't have any strong opinions about it. I mean, it's just, we keep seeing this every week, more and more plugins getting acquired by other people trying to build a little, um, kind of hedge around whatever product they are offering to kind of get a little bit more sway in the WordPress community. Um, this is something we'll probably see going on over and over again. It'll be interesting to see what the next plugin they acquire is. Yeah, they, they seem to be in, in a little bit of a charge, don't they? Don't they? To buy... Well, did, I mean, Liquid Web bought iThemes a couple of years ago, right? It yeah, and he got quiet. Doesn't, it doesn't mention that in this in this uh, uh, in this article, but um, so it seems like uh, you know it may be part of the broader plan of um, uh, Liquid Web to have one of those you know offerings of more stuff than hosting, um, and uh, it, you know it does fit in with Restrict Content Pro. And it only dawned on me when I read this article that oh yes, since I have this like lifetime license to everything iThemes makes, I could actually go you know download Restrict Content Pro and and uh, WP Complete and oh and can you 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 got you bought one of their lifetime licenses I I, I won it in won a contest it? that I didn't know I was in. Uh, I came home. That's the best home. way to get anything. I tell bar, you, I, I, came, I came home one day and I had this email basically saying, you won. I'm like, I won what? Um, but uh, yes, so I have a, you know, a, an infinite license um, uh, for everything that iThemes makes. Um, and uh, <clears throat> so uh, I have not been thinking about... Um, that much about courseware in the like mark something complete thing, which is what this does basically is let you uh, put a short code on a page that says that the person can, you know, check that off as being completed. And then the admin can, you know, see who has, has gone through and, and marked those pages complete. There doesn't seem to be anything that it does to, you know, ensure that you actually did complete something. Uh, so I, I, uh, I, I would imagine that the student could still, you know, skip to the bottom of the page, click complete and, and not actually read well, it. That's the story of English education, right? Uh, uh, trust me, not just not just English. Um, uh, um, 
but uh, uh, I think it's a, it, you know, it seems like it makes sense as an acquisition. Right. This asks Spencer, why do you think they bought it? Do you think they're going to go into the learning management sector? I, I was a little puzzled why they bought it. Uh, well, let's talk about WP Fusion. So WP Fusion is uh, an accessory amplifier. So WP Complete is one of the plugins that WP Fusion works with where, for example, if you have content that's not in an LMS, like Lifter or LearnDash, and you want to build a course, you can take any old pages and using some really simple short codes, make lessons out of regular content pages. That by itself is good to let somebody sort of see or you as the administrator know they've gone from this to this to this to this to this to this, whereas that's what LMSs do on their own. With WP Fusion, now you can give people tags when they either go and view the stuff or if they use the function of the WP Complete that says mark as complete. That could be used to trigger either notifications to the admin, trigger the site changes used with Elementor or launch flows and so forth. You can build an entirely automated system where using Restrict Content Pro you could probably build a membership site where now it's got membership content and it's just a way for them to essentially acquire a tool that they could have used for free, but now they can own and they can get a little bit of oomph. I would love to know on these things, by the way, the sales price, because I assure you this is a four-figure, maybe a five-figure deal. I don't think this is more than a five-figure deal. I mean, the plugin is nice, but it's an open source plugin. With, I don't know if it has a revenue model. If it did, it wouldn't have been worthy of any consideration because it didn't ever become a full LMS. It's an incredibly handy little tool. But if you follow my drift, easier for them to go around and buy up a lot of Lego makers for a couple bucks, bring in the team as like, you know, hey, friends of the company and work together. That's all there's to it. But the end goal is just that. iThemes is probably trying to put together essentially a package stuff of this is how you sell membership sites with restricted content and blah, blah, blah. And that's what I see. The cool thing, by the way, I want to, you know, this is kudos because Jack and I talk about this all the time. The, the gold miner scenario, right? So in the gold rush fable, everybody who went to mine the gold went poor or died or starved, but the, the people who sold the tools made a fortune. What we're seeing here is a rush for all the offline businesses and even regular people to now have online membership sites with marketing automation, blah, blah, blah. That's why everybody's trying to be in the business of selling gold miner tools. And they're trying to do it in a way that includes the hosting and the tools and the, the, the lessons and so forth. And you can even expand it out to the, the hosting itself, uh, to the uh, underlying WordPress itself. That's what the Jetpack folks are up to, right? Like, look, Jetpack's got everything you need. And you got the WooCommerce uh, 12% per charge, you know, makes it easy, blah, blah, blah. So I'd expect more of this. Yeah, great points. What do you reckon, John? Yeah, I, th I think that sums it up. I think that they want to create an LMS and they're getting a building block. And it's someone that they know, it's Paul Jarvis and his developer. And uh, like I said, they can take this and maybe take some of the, the code from uh, Restrict Content Pro. So that's yeah. not really LMS at all, but they could probably, you know, glue this stuff together and make get well, it I mean, the, the WP complete already works with restrict content pro uh, if if you want to you know add that aspect to your uh, to your membership site um, so uh, that seems like you know that that part is already pretty much set up uh, 
and it, you know it's the WP Complete plugin has a you know that it has a pro add-on for uh, additional features. It seems like it was you know becoming reasonably successful, but but beyond what the team in charge could do, so that they weren't gonna you know they weren't gonna be able to to scale it any further. Um, One thing that um, Spencer said that I think would be interesting is in the spirit of open source and we're all part of this community, like if people would start disclosing their sales numbers, that would be super interesting. And it would be probably really helpful for other plugin developers out there that have like built little plugins and stuff. Just like, what, what are people doing? Like it would be really interesting. And since we're all part yeah, of the community. Yeah, once, once in a while there's been some mention of, you know, what got paid for, for, for which, but yeah, I, su- I suspect that when it's a smaller amount of money that they're not that excited about sharing it. Yeah. It's, it's a funny sector. You know, we had um, the founder of WP capsule and uh, infinity WP infinity, didn't we? infinity WP, didn't we, Stephen on the show yesterday. And I think they've sold a lot of stuff. Um, there's, I, can't, I still come across companies I never hardly heard of, and they've said, oh, I've sold about 30,000 of this particular plugin, and I thought, was never even heard of it, you know. Uh, um, so you just don't know, do you? If they, if they wanted to make it clear the way they do it off in Silicon Valley to crunch range, is they'll say, an undisclosed six-figure sum, an undisclosed seven-figure sum. That's what they'll say. In this case, who knows? I mean, logic yeah, I, tells I me. I think you're right. I think logic you're tells right. me it's not a hundred dollars, and it's probably not five hundred or, th- or even a thousand dollars. But it could be nine thousand dollars, or it could be twenty-five thousand dollars. I doubt it's a hundred thousand dollars. If it is, that'd be great. But here's the thing about it: open source is either a talent grab or a code grab. But the code you don't need to pay for to grab it. You can look and see what somebody did, rewrite it from scratch, or even take the code without any legal or moral or ethical repercussions. So it has to be something where it's done in the spirit of cooperation and goodwill to say, hey, we're best buddies. We're living together in the same house, working on the same project. It's not about, oh, look at your top secret you know, method of doing something. That's out in the open for everybody to see. Look no, at- but of course, if you're going to market it under the same name and you want to bring the uh, customer base with you. Uh, there, are no, there are no paying customers. That's the problem. They, well, I, there are, though, apparently, since they do have a premium content version. content pro, not for, not for... WP Complete has a, has a premium add-on. Um, I don't okay. think there's a ton of them, right? Because it's a fairly new company and it's it's got mm. something like 2,000 free users. So it's not like they've got a huge market share that you would want to invest in them for the sake of. Yeah. So maybe a multiple of the earnings on that. But, you know, and with all these things, I, I have the benefit of seeing from various people who make plugins around the industry, what people generally make. But Pippin Williamson has been very clear about his income. And I think mm. Pippin's plugins were at the top of the top with the exception of things like WooCommerce and so forth. And, uh, you know, it's rare for a plugin author to get into the seven figures. It's yeah. quite feasible to get in the six figures, but it's depending on how well you do if you're in the low or the mid six figures. So, you know, it's theoretically possible they got into a six figure deal. I'd be very surprised though, because if they had a six-figure recurring revenue and it's two dudes running the thing, which, by the way, I like Paul Jarvis and Zach Gilbert from what they've done in the past. There's no, Nobody sells that. You don't just give that away. I mean, it's an annuity. You just get a couple of people to operate it for you and you just sit back and, and that's it. 
it's not a high uh, you know touch type of a problem when you've got a plugin like that. It's a utility plugin. So whatever. It's a nice story though because it demonstrates that there's actually a way for whatever the amount to take an idea, make it a, fl- a plugin, and yeah, grows into something better. You know, so no. Yeah, I always thought I always thought the financing of um, of of financing plugins and making them more <clears throat> sustainable and more so you don't have like a free plugin and it just disappear and it could be on and then somebody has to take it over or something um, could have been much better organized, but I, I don't think that's ever going to happen. So if you look at things in the wilds, right? Like I have my tea, this yeah. thing here, right? Mm. This thing's been around forever. The concept of what this does, nobody owns. But I'll be damned if there's people giving these away for free at a fast food restaurant and people selling them for $100 each at a silver shop. It's the marketing that is being sold. It's the story. It's the Well, that and the fact that you could melt the silver one down and turn it into money, but you can't do it with a plastic. (laughs) Give me the silver. But but the point (laughs) I'm making is in, in the plugin space of WordPress, there are some fabulous, fabulous, fabulous long time in the repository plugins like admin menu editor, and they have a pro version. But Janice Dells does not sell that thing really actively. That could have, would have, should have become a full-blown product into something else. So the difference was how much interest, how much marketing, how much you know product market fit and customer. So the difference between success and failure really, I think, lies on the founder and the characters that we know about, the ADPNRs or the Pippin Williamsons or the Jack Arturos or the Adrian with Groundhog or whomever, even ourselves and so forth. It, it depends on where the founder wants to go. Is it a side project and they put a buy me a cup of coffee bullshit thing on there? Or did they say, check it out. I get this new thing. It's amazing. It's shiny. You can eat with it. You can dig with it. You can feed the kids with it. You can, you know, that's what sells products. So, mm, yeah. Right. You can't beat silver. I'm from the silver state, my friends, I live in the silver state. We financed Nevada, financed the Civil War, actually. It wasn't for Nevada, the union would have gone bust. But there we, there we go. I think for a 10-year, I think for a 10-year period, Virginia City was the most wealthiest spot on the planet Earth, actually. Uh, um, there we go. Uh, I'm on to the next. That was boring, wasn't it, listeners? I apologise for that. Uh, Ralph, <laughs> I mean that mood. Um, on to the next one. Intuitive design. It's, it's the dexamethasone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm twittering. I've got back on twittering now. So Intuitive design. Don't Hi, do you recognise me? I'm John Denwood, <laughs> the host of your show. <laughs> right. Thank you. Uh, um, on to the next one. Uh, um, so intuitive design. What did you reckon about this one, Sandy? Uh, I mean, um, <clears throat> you know, th- this is a, uh, a an extensive written take on basically uh, what I said in my 2015 WordCamp Sacramento presentation. You know, I was is, thinking that when I was reading. I think, oh, there, there, was, there is no such thing as intuitive software, intuitive design. I mean, first of all, Intuition is a thing that people have, uh, and it's not uh, uh, necessarily 
something that leads to a, a, a good design. But, you know, when people say intuitive about the design of something, what they mean is I can figure out how to use it easily. And the thing that makes that happen is um, that it's similar to other things that they've used. You know, human beings have to learn everything. We have to learn to walk. You know, we have to learn to talk. We have to learn to to read and write. Uh, you know, we don't instinctively know how to do very much. Um, so uh, that's just, you know, a delusion. And it is kind of like, you know, you will hear these kinds of requests from uh, clients, uh, just kind of like, you know, I I want you to make a viral video. Uh, you know, I I I I, I want to you know I want to optimize my website. You know, as as if SEO was a condiment that you you know sprinkle <laughs> on your website after it's done, instead of something that you have to work on to, uh, you know, throughout the entire process of of structuring your your site and creating its content. Um, and so, <clears throat> you know, I think that that it's important for people to keep pointing this out because uh, just because one person said it once doesn't mean that everybody is aware of it. And, and we do hear that thrown around a lot, uh, but it's not a, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's not a new um, uh, idea uh, that, uh, you know, intuitive is just a, a, a buzzword uh, for, you know, familiar enough that we can figure it out without reading the directions. Ooh, we're not in an industry that's filled with buzzwords, are we? No, never. Uh, never. Find me an industry that isn't. True, true. What do you reckon, John? What do you reckon about this slide? Yeah, I mean, a really good example of this is like, um, this is kind of like the UX designers and the visual designers, they kind of, I feel like if if we can make this like just so obvious to like anyone that's using this that you know this is what they should do but it's a good point we don't follow intuition when it comes to usability we follow conventions we yeah. follow things patterns that we've already learned it's a good example is the hamburger menu and now we've got like all these different like variations on it like the kebab and you know we've got three lines some have like two lines some have like kind of staggered lines but Almost none of these that I encounter in the wild to this day have a label that says, this is the menu, tap this to, you know, make a menu appear. But it's, that was the thing that appeared on mobile. It was like 11 years ago. Um, and, and there's people that still, you know, run into problems with this. And it, it's another thing where in the, in the quest to make design clean, we eliminate things that are like obvious and make the usability harder. And I'll give you a great example is using that same um, uh, a hamburger menu like on a desktop. Yeah, I hate, oh, I hate people that do that. Oh, oh I, we had a, I had a client once that wanted oh, yeah. that because just... Shoot them, that's what know, I say. <clears throat> it was trendy and slick and, and it's like, hey, do you want people to be able to actually find your content or not? Um, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, y'all. <laughs> Oh, you're leaving it to that. Go on, John. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, so basically, I mean, my my whole philosophy or when I'm designing a site, I mean, and other people might do this totally different, but I want to make things as obvious as possible. I mean, yeah, you, you're going to have to have some kind of 
trigger mechanism for a menu on mobile. But as you know, you don't want to hide stuff. You don't want to make things like, you know, difficult to figure out. You don't want to do things like scroll jacking. Well, the truth, the truth of it, I'm sorry to butt in, but you're so right about that. But the truth is, if it's obvious, it's still probably not obvious enough because you know it. You're going to have to probably make it even more obvious than the obvious that you think it is at the present moment, won't you? Yeah, I mean, and, and accessibility, I mean, it plays into this too. I mean, when it, the example that's in the article, they're talking about forms, like you tap into the input and then start typing, and that's not obvious. But, you know, the accessible way is to actually have a label um, for each input and not have placeholder text. But I, I've, every time that I was doing white label, you know, like four or five years ago, uh, development, like almost every like design that I would ever get, it would be like that because it would be visual designers and Photoshop people and people designing in Sketch or whatever. But they you know, would wait. And I've always yeah. had problems with these services where they get a group of people to come and look at your website and they give you feedback, right? I think on a UX basis, it's useful about when they're just asked about um the navigation and could they get around the site right but when they are when they use it as a way of around copy or message well of course they're not interested in they probably never go they're not interested in that particular subject or that particular industry or that particular product so they of course they know freaking nothing about it but most of the people that will come to your site probably coming because they're doing an active search to find something and that's why they they've read the title and they've gone to your site because they do know something about it am i just waffling or is well um, yeah i think you should test copy on other than you know for the basic can you tell what this website is about stuff uh you should test copy on people who are you know part of your intended audience or similar to your intended audience, and you should test usability. You know, if you're building a website uh, that sells products to uh, tech experts, um, they're probably going to have a a different understanding of, of the web than if you sell, you know, if your website is aimed at um, you know, senior citizens with low incomes who probably have, you know, old computers and are, uh, it, it, you know, not very um, conversant uh, with things. So, yeah, you have to think about, you know, designing for your, your primary intended audience. Um, <clears throat> if, you design, if you design for your primary intended audience, is it not possible to design a intuitive design, right? Because I can, I can design an intuitive design for myself, right? Because it is intuition is a personal thing. Mm. I so I can make something intuitive for me to do because I can create that because I know how I intuit and. Well, you created it. You know, of course, you know how exactly. it works, and it's so, and those things are obvious to you. And if it's right. only for you, that's great. But if I know, if I know, like you, Sally, good enough. Like we sit down and we're, you know, we just like spend all this time together, I know how you work and process your life, then I could probably design something that's intuitive for you because I understand the context of where you come came from. And so like just by like transient properties, if 
you can understand your user base and your user base is small enough, you can come up with an intuitive design for that user base. You can't come up with an intuitive design for the entire world, right? Because that's impossible. The smaller you, can come user- up, you can come up with a usable design. I mean, I really don't want to call it intuitive because it just keeps perpetuating uh, the mythology. You can you can come up with a design that is, uh, you know, familiar enough and easy enough for a person to understand and adopt based on other things they have worked with. You know, the same but, as like you, anybody not- can pick up a spoon because a spoon has a certain sort of design and use it. And if it has like, um, you know, frilly uh, d- d- decorations or whatever, that doesn't matter. You know, pretty much anybody can get it, who, who can drive a car can get into any car and drive it. Now, there's lots of detailed differences in the design of the car and probably, uh, you know, there may be a number of engine differences in the design of the car. Your car doesn't even like have an engine because you bought a Tesla. But driving the car, uh, you know, has certain types of similar controls. And and there was some test where uh, it was like the the head of the automaking company uh, that had produced a car that had this big sort of tablet thing for doing a lot of, of stuff with. Uh, actually like got into the car on a road test and realized how freaking unusable that was while you were driving. Uh, and it's like, yeah, that was maybe a little late in the game to discover that. <laughs> well, like maybe this is just arguing the definition of words here, but a hamburger button, for instance, if I would, if somebody has a website with a hamburger button, I can intuit that that like clicking on that button opens up a menu like that. Like You know that it opens a menu because you have seen it open menus before. And that is what in, in being intuitive is, is because like I see something and I know what it's going to do. I know what an oil light on a car does because I've seen it before. So that, that's intuition. And so like, there, there's no hope for you, Stephen. You're, <laughs> you're one of these that wants a hamburger menu on their desktop, don't you? That's no, what you're no I, don't, I don't think it's that. But the thing is, is that, that, that like if you learned, it. if you know that you learned something, mm. right? Like, you know, uh, <clears throat> If you know that if you know that you learned something, and I remember learning to drive, I do it automatically now, right? All the, it's the, intuitive the, to you. The reflex is there. You don't, you know, you don't think about it. It's you know unconscious uh, uh, competence, at least you know to the degree that people can argue I'm a competent driver. Um, uh, but it's a learned thing. It's not like, oh, I have a gut feeling about this person that they are not. And, and it's those gut feelings that are the intuition. Right, and, yeah. I think uh, we ended it there. Uh, um, yeah, that, was a, that was a reasonable discussion. Yeah, Stephen, I, I have doubts about Stephen now. But no, oh, well. Uh, <laughs> I think the article is being in, hyperbolic and this yeah, whole sorry. intuition thing is a hyperbolic statement. Though. Right. <laughs> on, on to our recommendations of the week. Um, I've been trying to find a decent um, interface that you can change permission levels, make new ones. And I've been looking at various products and I came across this one, um, Published Press. They do a, a free version and a premiere. I'm looking at both. Um, and I've been playing around with it and it looks promising. The interface is better than some of the other products on the market. And um, it's something sorely needed um, 
because giving the right permissions to the right, especially when you've got learning management systems and other things, the kind of permission, the permissions that come out the box of WordPress can quickly become a nightmare <laughs> and you end up giving everybody admin rights, which is another freaking nightmare, which you should avoid, avoid like the plague, actually, uh, um, to say the least. So on to John. John, have you got anything you want to recommend to the listeners and viewers? Yeah, I sure do. Now, a lot of people that listen to this show, I know that they are uh, within the WordPress space and, you know, perhaps they're developing a uh, a product and trying to find product market fit. But there's this excellent um, guide on early stage SaaS marketing, and it covers all different things. And this is from the team at crunchylinks.com. So I, I, love, the, I, love, the, I love the, the URL, Crunchy Links. Yeah, so I encourage you to check that out. All right, put it into chat, please. It is, it is. Um, Spencer, have you got something you want to share? you uh, utility plugin useful for anybody who uses WooCommerce uh, scenario is you want to have a discount rule that varies per product and so forth. So we had a client that was doing something with wine. They had different sales of like cases versus uh, individual bottles. So just a very handy free plugin um, called discount rules for WooCommerce lets you have dynamic pricing and discount right out of the box. So really useful, you know, like buy 12 bottles, get 20% off. Something everybody wants to do. Really easy this way. And how, you, and how are you getting on with launch flows? How's launch flows going? Launch flows has been great. You know, what's happening is that the thing that I promised I would have before the end of the year may actually become a reality. Um, we work intuitively with all those other plugins, you know, that we had a webinar about. But, you know, WP Fusion, of course, your favorite Lifter or LearnDash LMS, your favorite CRM, WooCommerce, and so forth. What's happened is that the platform that I always said WordPress should be is really something that that's what we see and deliver. And for hosting, of course, Zipfish or whatever your scenario may be existing. The idea is that if you thought of WordPress as a potluck dinner, it's amazing because there could be 64 people who bring meatloaf, but it's a really bad experience if you let people decide what things to take from the WordPress you know, WordPress potluck dinner. So what I've been doing in a consultancy level, six to eight calls a day is just having a meeting and everybody I say, look, or you can use the platform that we've put together. And it's really resonating because the simplicity of using a few pieces that work so well together means that people just go right to their solution. So launch flows has been the part of it that works to make it all look good, feel good from a sales and checkout perspective. WooCommerce is the onboarding engine. WP Fusion, the automation, Lifter or LearnDash organizes the content, uh, and all the other pieces that work alongside the you know, affiliates and so forth. So I've been really, really excited about where it's going. But at the same time, I follow the same rule, which is we're driving this based upon what the customers are buying rather than let's get $10 million and hope for the best. And by doing it that way, it goes slower, but for a small company, very lucrative, but it allows you to adjust. And so launch flows in particular we're moving now in the last part of the year into ready-made, like here's examples ready to use of stuff. For example, I just need to sell a membership with an upsell. Okay, here's five templates for that. Pick one of them. They're all made with Elementor. You could just start with which one you want and put your own picture inside of it. Because what I found was there's way less geeky people than there are people who just want to get to the result. And by offering, okay, fine, 
read that novel later and instead just buy the, the Cliff's Notes today, people seem very pleased. And they're also very happy to get help from the other plugins and the plugin authors as necessary. So I'm really excited because at the end of the day, I'm going to take full leverage of the fact that uh, you don't need to own WordPress as a platform to make a very lucrative business out of it that actually delivers help for people where they need it, which is the use case of it. And uh, even though I talk about it here, the drama is, is something I'd rather avoid. I do. There you go. Um, on to you, Sally. Got something you want to recommend? Um, yeah, I'd like to recommend reading the directions. Um, <laughs> there was a, uh, a, a, there was a, a software update to uh, my Kindle device. Um, and I thought it had stopped working because the forward and back was not working the way it had been working. Well, it, it turns out that what happened is they changed uh, how that works and where you tap on it. Uh, and, and once I once I knew that, uh, <clears throat> I, uh, I, uh, I realized that it was in fact working. Of course, I only managed to find that out by ordering a replacement and reading the directions for that one. So uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, it's, it is helpful to, uh, to to check out the notes on updates. It's so, uh, so annoying when they do something like that. Can I, can I jump Spe- on speaking of not being intuitive. Yeah. <laughs> I see something today happen, which is, ties into the interface thing, what Sally says. I don't know if it is a factor of age or that it's changed, but I, if I could go in a time machine back to Steve Jobs' skeuomorphism, with skeuomorphism, it seemed that any of us who predated the technology could see, I want to use contact. So I push the picture of the contact thing. Whereas now I was trying to have a Skype call on mobile while I was walking and the person chatted to me. And I, I literally had to just randomly start pushing icons around the screen until I came across the thing that represented chat. And to me, it was, do I need to read the directions in order to get to that result, or shouldn't it just be like as simple as, oh, it looks like a picture of somebody chatting or something? But it never is anymore. It always well, is. Well, old Stevie, he had his strengths and he had his weaknesses, but he wouldn't tolerate uh, shitty, hand, this is, this shitty is, interface design, this, would he? This is the man who insisted that the reason you couldn't use your iPhone as a phone was that you were holding it wrong. <laughs> True. <laughs> well, I, I did say he had his strengths and he had his weaknesses, didn't I, Sally? In all fairness, didn't I? You Stephen, did. have you got something you want to recommend? Uh, yeah, I'm going to recommend Shift. It's a pretty sweet uh, productivity software if you are managing multiple like Gmail accounts or multiple Slacks, uh, multiple whatever. Um, it's kind of a, it runs on Chromium um, mm-hmm. and it's pretty much like Chrome duplicate, but just organized in a really slick user interface. Um, well, yeah, I'll have, have, that, that, have a look at that if I've got a spare moment, which isn't very much. All right, um, so, um, John, how's the best way for people to find out more about you and what you're up to, John? The two places you can find me the most. YouTube, uh, search for either Lockdown SEO or John Locke SEO. I'm putting out videos three days a week. Uh, or go to my website, LockdownSEO.com. And Spencer, uh, what's the best way to find out, for people to find out more about you and what you're up to? Uh, launchflows.com or go to wpfusion.com and click on get a free call and I'd be happy to talk to you about your business situation. Yep. Um, Stephen, what's the best way for people to find out more about you and what you're up to? Uh, Head over to zipfish.io. You can book a one-on-one call with me and I'll help you out with speeding up your website. 
And Sally, what's the best way for people to find more about you and what you are up to? I am either a WP fangirl or Sally Getch on pretty much everything. Uh, if you can spell my name, you can find me. Yeah, and listeners, we've got some great um, get, um, guest panellists going to be joining us in the, new, the next few weeks. Um, we probably have got some new faces that are going to be joining us on a regular basis on the panel as well. Um, got some exciting developments there. And if you really want to support the show, um, go over to our YouTube channel and subscribe there. A lot of the interviews, there's bonus content, and I'm, I'm doing a lot more training videos about all aspects of WordPress from beginner to intermediate. Um, and if you really want to support us, give us uh, a um, review on iTunes. That would be great. We will be back next week, folks. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the WP Tonic Podcast, the podcast that gives you a dose of WordPress medicine twice a week.